And welcome back to Telling the Untold Stories of Wilkes University. I'm your host, Lindsay Scorey. I am so excited to be in studio today as we are interviewing another Wilkes alumni. Today, I am in studio with Trevor Skeen. I hope I'm pronouncing your last name right. You are. Okay, beautiful. Because I was like, wait, I didn't ask that beforehand. (laughs) Awesome. So Trevor is the co-founder and CEO of Patent Hacks, as well as a Wilkes alumni with his degree in mechanical engineering with a minor in physics. He has many years of experience in the patent industry. And Trevor also comes to us as a mentor of the Allen P. Kirby Center, where I met him from. So I'm super excited to have Trevor in studio with me today. I'm going to bounce it over to you to talk a little bit about yourself and anything I, I might not have just mentioned, because I know I, I literally pulled out your minor. So, yeah. Well, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, as you mentioned, I came to Wilkes. I graduated in 2015, uh, mechanical engineering, uh, minor in physics, like that, like you said. Um, and yeah, I, I, um, I'm from the area, uh, born and raised in West Pittston, which is only like maybe like 15 minutes down the road. That's where I went to high school. So, uh, so from the area. And like you said, after Wilkes, I met up with some people in the patent industry, ended up working as a patent, patent examiner for the federal government, where I kind of reviewed patent applications. Um, and that was kind of my first entry into the industry and kind of just based on some prior experiences we'll get into later, ended up snowballing into me starting a company all about patent education, which is what Patent Hacks is. How awesome. And I'm super excited when we get to delve into more of um, patent hacks and everything with that in your career. But I did want to start more, let's go chronological and talk about sort of your experience as a Wilkes alumni. So obviously to get where you are today, you had to have that undergraduate experience to get you where you are. So let's talk a little bit, what was your undergraduate career like? Like, did you have certain career goals? Did you, you weren't sure where you were going to end up? What was it like? Yeah. So coming into school, actually, so I went to Wyoming area and they actually had a pretty good uh, that was my high school. They had a pretty good um, senior project where they forced you to pick a, like, decide on your major and then had to give a presentation to, like, a panel of, of um, faculty. They had you do a, I think it was, like, 10-plus page research paper. So you really had to research the major that you wanted to do. And it was funny. That is what I knew I wanted to do something in engineering. I had a job shadow, too. So that's what made me realize that I didn't want to do environmental and civil, and it kind of pushed me towards mechanical. So when I came to Wilkes, uh, I was pretty confident in what I wanted to do engineering-wise. It was funny, in my high school, in eighth grade, they even had you write a letter to yourself that you could open on graduation. And when I opened it on graduation, it said, you're good at math and science. You should probably do something in engineering. <laughs> and I was just like, wow, all right. Well, you I knew guess, it from a young age. Yeah, really? I didn't know Fair that five years prior, I already knew what I was going to be doing. But uh, but yeah, so there was really no questions about what I wanted to be doing when I got to Wilkes. Um, and I loved it even, I've always loved kind of math and physics and stuff like that. So I, I knew that that was going to be what I was going to want to do. Um, and even from a young age, I had a lot of ideas that I was kind of like, oh, it'd be really cool if I could you know, use that some somewhere, it kind of led me down a career path where it was like, how can I kind of, you know, make these ideas, you know, bring them to life. Um, And that's even one of the things that kind of led me to patent hacks down the line was when I was, I think in 10th or 11th grade, I had an idea that, have you ever heard of the company Tile? It's like I a, don't believe it's like so. a little tracker. Now you have Apple AirTags, which are essentially the same thing. <gasps> okay, I but got you. Tile would be something back in the day somebody would put in their wallet or attach their mm. keys so you could find them if you lose them. And back in the day, my little sales pitch used to be like, what do you do when you lose your phone? And everyone would be like, I call it and it rings. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, cool, me too. And I'd go, what do you do when you lose your keys? And everybody would go, 
I guess I kind of just look and look and retrace my steps. And I'm like, yeah, wouldn't it be cool if you could like ping your keys the way you could call your phone and find them? So I had that idea back in 2010. Tile as a company didn't come to uh, the market until 2012 and it sold for over $200 million last year. So that was my big like idea that I missed out on. That like kills you, yeah. Yeah. And the the patent, the cost of the patent is what made me give up on the idea. So it's kind of like comes full circle with where I ended up in the future. Right. But, um... But yeah, that was kind of from a young age, having that mindset of wanting to innovate. That's what led me to engineering. Um, and kind of once I got to Wilkes, I just, I, I never really had questions about that. Um, but I just kind of enjoyed my, you know, entire Wilkes experience being from the area and, you know, close to home. Yeah, that's awesome. Did you like the engineering program here? Yeah, I did. Um, I, there was a lot of professors that I still kind of keep in touch with sometimes to this day. Um, I did a little bit of work last year with the engineering um, senior project group that's now run by Dr. Bednars, who's a professor of mine, who um, is a great guy. And um, he had me kind of, um, we, we gave a free trial essentially to all the students in there to try to like help them if there was any IP related things they wanted. He had me come attend the actual senior project presentations and I met a ton of the groups and got to talk to them about what we do and, you know, tell, you know, obviously they already had access at that point, but kind of reassure them of how to use it. Um, and it was kind of cool being there and some of my other professors coming up and talking to me. So uh, I had a great relationship with a lot of different professors and, and really just enjoyed kind of the engineering experience as a whole here. That's awesome. So let's delve in then. Let's get into to the meat of the topic. Okay. So before we talk about how you got to become the co-founder and CEO of Patent Hacks, let's talk about what Patent Hacks is, I guess, to give the listener a little bit of background before we talk about how it came to be. Sounds good. Yeah, I... Um, I, so the actually the actual story about how it came to be is like kind of one of those stories that, that uh, if you don't believe in fate, this might help you kind of figure it out. So <laughs> this is going to sound a little bit roundabout, but it's getting somewhere. So essentially, I'm a Penn State football fan. I know I came to Wilkes, but the Colonel's football program wasn't as exciting as Penn State. So I've always been a Penn State fan. Yeah. Um, and I, I filled out an ad on Facebook, sponsored by BMW, to win tickets to the Big Ten National Championship game. Okay. And this was before the season started. So essentially it was like, if your team makes it to the Big Ten National Championship game, then you're entered into a pool to win tickets. So fast forward through that season, Penn State is going to that to that game, and I get a call from Illinois, Indiana. Some I forget what the thing said, but I looked at it and I almost didn't answer it because I was like, I don't know anybody from here. Yeah, it looks spam call. Yeah. <laughs> but then I was just like, ah, whatever. With work, maybe I'm getting a call. So I pick it up, and they're like, Hey, you won tickets to the Big Ten national championship game. And I immediately took the phone away from my face and almost hung up because I was like, Oh, it is a spam call. I was right. And then I stopped. I paused like right before I hung up, and I was like. This sounds like vaguely familiar. So I put the phone back to my ear and the woman's just silent. And I go, and she just goes, do you want them? (laughs) And I was just like, yeah, sure. I guess I'm going to have to figure out how I'm going to get there. So I get the tickets. I go with a buddy of mine. And before that game, there's kind of like a all you can eat and drink VIP section beforehand. We go there. We're there for an hour. It's so packed. There's no place to sit. Finally, after an hour, we grab a standing room only table and 
when we're at that table, my buddy and I were taking shifts to like get food or go to the bathroom or whatever because we don't want to lose this table. Right. And after about 30 minutes, two women come up and they go, hey, do you mind if we share this table with you? And we're like, yeah, sure, whatever. Who cares? And they're like, after five more minutes, they go, you mind if our husbands join? And we're like, yeah, whatever. The more the merrier, bring them over. <laughs> we get to talking to them. And I'm like, so what do you guys do? And they go, oh, we actually uh, moved out to Arizona, started a company out of the spare bedroom of our house, and now we have like a federal contract, we re- re- review patent applications for the USPTO. And, uh, and I was like, wow, that's really cool. I was like, what, you know, like who does that kind of work? And they're like, generally engineers where, you know, we hire engineers. And I was just like, I'm an engineer. Wait, so how old were you at this point? It might have been a year or two after... I would have graduated. I I forget what year it was. It might have been 16. It was either 16 or 17. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but after Wilkes, I actually was trying to start a business with what I did my senior project on. So I kind of like took time working on trying to get that off the ground before I went to look and apply for other jobs. So at this point, I was applying and interviewing. And so I was, you weren't even like in the patent industry at this point. Like nope. this is what got you into it? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so I'm talking to them and they're like, I'm like, who does this kind of work? And they say engineers. And I was like, I'm an engineer. They're <laughs> yeah, like, well, like, here's, <laughs> here's our emails. Like, email us your resume when you get home after this, and, like, we'll, wow. we'll put you into the next round of hiring. It gets crazier. <laughs> so then we keep talking, and I'm like, oh, cool. Now we're just making small talk. And right. I'm, I'm, I'm on cloud nine now. I'm like, cool, I may have just got a job out of yeah. this. Yeah. And then I'm, we're just like, oh, so where are you guys from? And they're like, oh, we're, well, we live in Arizona now, but we're from, like, a small town in northeastern Pennsylvania. And my buddy and I look at each other, we're like, you're we're kidding. from northeast we just drove from a small town in northeastern pennsylvania like That's oh no insane no, no way where are you from and we're, we're they go dallas pennsylvania <laughs> and i was like we look at each other we're like i was like dallas we're from we go to school and we, we went to wyoming area and they were yeah. like oh wow so my they're now my business partners who i launched patent hacks with those those two people are the ceo and president of uh global patent solutions which is a company out in arizona and they literally grew up in dallas pa went to Penn State and then worked for the office and then went out wow. to Arizona. So that's, that is how I got started in that. I first worked for them for a few years uh, and then kind of came to them one day once I had the realization of like patents cost a ton and they're complex. People don't get them. And I came to them with the idea of like, hey, there has to be a more affordable, attainable kind of pathway into the patent industry for the everyday person. And they were like, yeah, we totally agree. And that's where Patent Hacks comes from. So what is Global Patent Solutions? Like, what is the relationship? Like, is there like a difference? Like Patent Hacks specifically was to help the everyday person who can't afford patents? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Global Patent Solutions is, they have, I think, somewhere between three to five different federal contracts now with the USPTO and I think maybe even the WIPO. Um, and essentially, they are contracted to review patents for the USPTO. So they basically hire people on to work as patent examiners and do the work for the USPTO. Uh, so they're on that side. And then the other side of it is that they do kind of professional grade prior art searches. So if like a major company needs help with their searching to feel comfortable with an idea, uh, they would go to Global Patent Solutions and hire them to do that because they obviously have like a whole suite of people to do that. Um, patent Hacks flips to the completely opposite side of it and helps people re- learn how to research themselves and prepare their own patent applications to make it more affordable and kind of attainable for that everyday person. So they're kind of on the opposite ends of the patent spectrum. Mm, I gotcha. That makes sense. So I'm curious then how, what was the process like for starting Patent Hacks? Like, was it kind of like difficult trying to like begin that process? Like, you know? Yeah. So 
this was the first time I've ever done anything like that. Like, like we discussed my backgrounds in like engineering and stuff, not business. Yeah. So, uh, it was actually a, a lot of learning lessons, right? Like yeah. a lot of, uh, time spent researching and making mistakes and th realizing after the fact, like, ah, I probably shouldn't have wasted time on that. But one of the things I think you learn in business early on is that you kind of need to make those mistakes because you it doesn't click in your brain and you don't realize that, oh, okay, that's right. Okay, so I won't do it that way. I'll do it a different way in the future. You don't get that until you make the mistake, learn why mm -hmm. you shouldn't do that, and then move forward. So it was a lot of that, everything from who we're working with from web development, how we set up our website, payment processors. Like we had to get all of that done, right? So we're well-funded from my partners, but that's something where... A lot of it was up to me to say, like, hey, what do you think we should do? This is kind of your vision. How do we how do we make this happen? So for me, it was a lot of like, OK, well, I guess I got to do the research and figure out what we should do. Um, and we're lucky now to be partnered with like dozens of different colleges and universities working with uh, a government organization, a lot of people on kind of the B2B side. But in the beginning, we weren't even talking to them. We were only talking to like B2C, like everyday people. You got to spend a lot of marketing dollars to get there. So there was a lot of kind of work on that side to realize that even when you're spending that money, people don't just automatically buy your stuff. Right. You have to really convince them over multiple different ads that you're targeting them with. So I kind of quickly realized how much that was going to cost and kind of through talking to some people realized like, oh, it might be a little bit easier to actually get FaceTime with members of universities or government or mm -hmm. whatever and explain to them, hey, here's what we're trying to do to help people and educate people. I think we could really help you and kind of people realize that when you're talking to them are like, all right, cool. Let's find a way to work with this company. Right. Um, so a lot of different stuff like that, that you kind of just figure out from trial and error. Mm -hmm. So let me, that makes total sense. Let me ask the obvious question as somebody who's not in the industry. Okay. So obviously, you know, you're standing out unique as a company because you're off able to offer like a more affordable way to, to achieve a patent. Mm -hmm. How are you able to do that without losing out on money yourself? So essentially what a lot of people don't realize is the cost of patents is like 99.999% the cost that you're paying an attorney. So when you look, when, when, if you Google it right now, you'll find all kinds of stuff uh, that says that a patent's going to cost you anywhere from like 10 to 20 grand. And that is entirely accurate. And the lower end of that is going to be less experienced people or, you know, people that are trying to undercut because, you know. Maybe they're just good people that don't want to charge as much, but yeah. it's also variable across the country, right? Like in California, they're going to charge more than that maybe. But here in PA, maybe they charge like 10, 15, 20 grand. Um, and all of that number that you're seeing there is the legal fee. The actual cost to file a patent, if you if you, let's say you did it on your own, is $455 for your first four to five applications. And... $75 for your first four if it's provisional. So 450 is your utility, the full actual patent provisional is just kind of like a placeholder. Right. Um, so you could see there, you could file a provisional and a full uh, utility patent, go through that whole process, and it costs a little bit over $500. And you still have to pay that when working with an attorney. But the $20,000 you're spending is just for the attorney's time to sit with you, learn about your idea, and then write it for you. So our whole platform's concept is like, okay, well, if we give you an entire platform that walks you through the process of doing your own research, preparing your drawings, learning how to draft your application and file it, 
then if you're willing to put in that work and learn that process, you can now go file it, only pay those filing fees. And there's great, there's great like USPTO provisions built in the MPEP that actually are geared towards helping those independent inventor types of people. Um, and we could touch on that if you want, because it's, it's a thing a lot of people don't know about that's really mm -hmm. helpful for the independent inventor. But, uh, but yeah, that's so our cost is literally just to get access to our educational information that walks you through that process. So our cost is like 1% or less than 1% the cost of attorneys. But the, the trade-off is now you're learning a skill and you have to put it to practice rather than paying somebody else to do it. Right, but it's super useful, especially if you're, like, considering, like, staying in, like, an entrepreneurial area where, like, you're literally coming up with your own ideas, obviously, if you need a patent. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, did you self-educate yourself on all of these facts, or was it when you started working with Global Patent Solutions you learned all this? Uh, combo of both, I guess. Like, once you get – so I had to go through a two-week training process when I was mm -hmm. coming into the patent industry, and I learned, obviously, a lot of stuff through that. When I was reviewing patent applications, you learned so much about kind of – um, almost like reverse. So if you think about it, the patent attorney's job is to build the patent application that's hard to reject. And then my job as a patent examiner was to break it apart and reject it. <laughs> so I have kind of this reverse engineering thinking of how patents work, of like how I understand what made my job hard. And that's kind of what we convey in there as well. It's like, hey, this is a little bit of a different perspective. We've got a lot of chapters that are like understanding a patent examiner's approach, things like that to kind of help people learn like this is how it all works. Here's how you could kind of reverse engineer everything and piece together like a good patent application. So um, so a lot of it was learned through my experience working in the industry that way as far as like theory and strategy and stuff like that. But then also in the process of putting all this content together, um, I think in totality, the amount of content in our platform is equivalent to two novels. We have over 500 real life examples from patent documents and stuff like that. Um, we have 50 plus step-by-step -step guides, 30 plus templates, things like that. So in the process of getting all that together and going through like multiple reviewal processes, that, um, you know, all the research that goes into that, all of the taking the time to go find applications and, you know, clip out certain claims and put that together to show why. Now it's just like encyclopedic in my head of at least the content that's in our platform because it's like writing that, reviewing it, going through it over and over and over again, uh, you know brings sticks in your brain when you go through that a million times. Right. And I think, see, what's fascinating too is like, I'm somebody who has like absolutely no previous knowledge on this and, and looking at like your website and like the materials that you produce, like it makes it easier to understand for people who likely are coming from, like, you don't know everything about the patent industry just because you want to like achieve a patent. You know what I mean? Right. Like, so I think it's, it makes it a lot easier to understand for people who don't come from there or who do and just simply like need to save money. And now you're more educational on the topic. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually curious to, to shift a little bit. Um, obviously now you came into an entrepreneurial experience that you likely didn't have first coming out of college and everything like that. Do you see it as a shift? Like, I think people see it as like, oh, when you're an entrepreneur, you get to create your own schedule and like stuff like that. But also at the same time, you kind of lose those boundaries of you're probably checking your email on weekends <laughs> and making meetings at like unconventional times. So what has that been like shifting to an entrepreneurial experience? Yeah, that's a great question. That is 100% true. What, so when I'm in a prospecting phase, when we're trying to find new universities or entrepreneurial organizations or whoever to target, um, I'm having 
20 to 50 different LinkedIn conversations at any given time. People respond to those at all hours of the day. So I'll be getting those at all times. Emails, scheduling emails on my calendar during those periods. I'll have like five plus meetings a day and I'm constantly doing that. Um, so there is a huge work-life balance of figuring that out. And when I first started doing those kind of those uh, prospecting phases, it was, it felt to me like I have to respond to every, especially on LinkedIn, because it feels more like an instant message rather than an email that you could maybe like wait on. And I would constantly feel like I need to get all of the people that responded to me today done by the end of the day. And as they started to rack up more and more and more, I quickly realized that that's not possible to do that and yep. not lose sight of all the other work I have to do. Um, so what I, again, kind of like a learning experience, what I mentally had to do was to just like let it go. So like after, especially when I got done with my work for the day and I was like, okay, I've gotten enough work done. I feel comfortable. I would not respond to anything coming after that, except for maybe there's the little ones where like some major school and somebody's really interested or something. And you're like, oh, it'd be really cool to, right, you want to pass I that wanna, up. Yeah. I want to get on this as soon as possible. But, um, but yeah, th it's definitely a huge, uh, thing and actually something that is probably even more weighs on your mind as an entrepreneur is kind of like the success and the failure of everything is dependent on you. Yeah. So that weighs on you a lot from kind of like a mental health standpoint of like, you kind of start to tie yourself into your business and you're like, if this fails, I'm a failure. I failed. Yeah. If this succeeds, great. I did a great job. Um, and that's something in talking to a lot of other entrepreneurs um, that I've heard a lot from them as well, right? Like that's something where people get wrapped up in that and they kind of lose themselves in that, especially because being an entrepreneur provides you so many freedoms and stuff. And sometimes mm -hmm. failure feels like I'm going to have to go back to that other way of life that I don't like anymore. So a lot of people kind of get caught up in that. Um, so the entire world and life of living as an entrepreneur is very like, you have to kind of mentally set yourself in a different place than most people working like a nine to five, or even if they like that job, you're, you're mentally in a very different place. Cause everything feels, um, very dependent on you. But the one thing that I like to try to remind people of with that is that like the failure feels bad on surface level. But like I was saying earlier, all of the things that I've learned from failure, I could not possibly have known without knowing it. So the failure concept is scary moving into the entrepreneurship space, but it's literally necessary yeah. for you to get to whatever that next step in entrepreneurship is that you're trying to do. Uh, you learn a lot more through that than your successes so in a lot of cases. So For sure. And I think that's really great advice too, because I think what's scary about that, like you said, is that failure's on you and also like your financial well-being, like your mm -hmm. stability, you know, like, yes, there's always, always that you know, plan B of you can go back into your industry and work a nine to five job. But, but it's hard because you don't want to have to do that. And it's like, you want to learn from the failure, but not have it completely tank you. Cause I think that's, what's interesting is you, you find like without failure, I think people tend to be arrogant for lack right. of a better yep. word. Like yep. if, if you've never had that failure, you don't know how to humble yourself and like learn from that and do better. So I completely agree. I think that's a really great piece of advice, but I'm curious then, do you find it hard to sort of like set boundaries? Is it easy to keep things in like a nine to five? Like what is your best like productive work period? Like what does your day to day look like then for doing that? Um, it's different all the time. Cause you'll have different meetings at different times. You'll have different, you know, like all, like different projects. So like for right now, what I just described to you in that past, uh, discussion topic was like, 
the the prospecting phase when I'm trying mm -hmm. to talk to people I'm trying to go through like a selling phase right now we're working on we're building out an entire library for copy or for a trademark to walk people mm -hmm. through the process of filing their own trademark uh, we're working on rebuilding kind of like a dashboard homepage in our platform we're working on a business and mentor center so uh, now I'm involved in so many kind of web development projects we're writing and reviewing the content for the trademark process we're uh, going, I'm also building kind of like a workshop that's, that's going to be sold in kind of the corporate space. Um, so a lot of those projects pull me away from the prospecting. So it's like even month to month, sometimes what I'm doing, but I actually like that because I, I hate doing the same thing over and over and over again. Right. You like um, the variety. Or yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so from like a, a, just a general workday standpoint, it changes all the time. But, uh, but essentially the hardest part, the hardest part in general about, working for yourself, which I was lucky to, I worked from home when I was doing the, the work as a patent examiner. So I got a little bit of a taste of it beforehand, but you, it's all self-governed, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, if you just feel lazy that day, no one's going to come into your office and be like, Hey, you got to get that project done. You could just sit on the couch and scroll on your phone or yeah. listen to music or watch a video or whatever. So that's the hardest part of it is it takes a lot of self-discipline to say, okay, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to get these things done today. I've got to move these things forward and get that done. The time frame doesn't matter as much though. Cause when you're working on your own if you get work done better at night sometimes you can just do it then um so for me depending on what kinds of meetings i have or what kinds of things i have coming up i'm kind of just my schedule's changing every single day based yeah. on when i need to get things done what what i have to do throughout my day but uh but like i said that's kind of the way i like it because it, it's a lot less of the same stuff over and over Right. And that's a really great point. The the point on self-discipline and everything too. Are you, I'm just curious, are you more of a morning person or a night person? Or I'm definitely afternoon? more of a night person. Really? I, I, I sleep in and I get started in my day later. I, 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 for some reason I found that I have more energy to sit down and work at night. When I first wake up and I still have, you know, I still have like You're the like groggy, groggy sleepies. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, sit down and like write or sit down and sh record a workshop video if I still feel half asleep. Right. So like, like get going that stuff shakes first. off throughout the day. Yeah. And then in the afternoon or for whatever reason at night, I feel more energized. So a lot of times if there's anything that feels like ah, I'm not gonna be able to get this done now, I'd be like, perfect. I'll just do that later. And I'll flip like something else to the morning. Right. Yeah. See, I wonder if I, I think it's interesting since like the pandemics happened, like there's been more of a shift to like work from home and untraditional mm -hmm. work schedules. I wonder if that's better actually in terms of productivity, because I'm sure you're not alone in that there's a lot of people who are probably more productive at night or not the traditional like nine to five that most jobs fall into. Cause that's like interesting to think about. Like I'm thinking about as you're talking about like how your schedule is a lot like you go into your own like productivity when you get to choose, like when you respond to messages and emails and stuff like that. Obviously, you want to do it, like, in a good time frame, which I know you do because you're the same way with us. But I wonder if that – we're going to see a shift in that. And I know that's, like, obviously, like, most entrepreneurs, if you're an ideal successful place, get to, like, create your own schedule, you know, around what you have going on. But I don't know. I just think that's very interesting. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely happening. I've found that a lot of the people we work with, we work with like on a contracted basis. So it mm -hmm. is kind of like that. They're working from wherever they're working from. As long as they're getting their work done for us, we're, we're not micromanaging them on that. Um, and I personally, I'm a big believer in the fact that th if the people that are working for you are happy and enjoy their lives, then that's going to create a better 
end product for you. Like even yep. sometimes maybe to my own detriment, like I'll be overly nice to somebody working on a project. Like for example, we're working on that trademark content now. I'm reviewing the work that somebody else is putting together and in a lot of places i'm like we need more here we need more here we need more here and i'm scheduling a meeting with them to talk about it but in my mind i'm i'm already thinking like if i go into that meeting and i'm like this isn't good enough you need to give me more they're gonna have a sense of like panic and as they're working right. on that they're gonna be like okay i need to do this because i'm like what if they don't like my work anymore and mm. they fire me or whatever you're gonna get this like panicked rushed work if i go into that person i'm like hey listen we need more here it's not a, like everything's all right yeah. but it's just like look at these notes that i made and here's the context of like we're trying to hold someone's hand through this process of filing a trademark we need to leave no doubts and no questions in their mind of like what they have to do next we need to lay it out for them so that that's in like layman's terms so it's easy for them to understand mm -hmm. and blah 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 and then give them more context of like what they aren't doing enough of i feel like that gives them like oh okay i yeah i could do that and then they go into it feeling more confident at like this person trusts that i'm going to get this done rather than s building that sense of panic in them which i feel like a lot of you know, just being in an office kind of almost builds that in, right? Like if you've got somebody walking by your desk, peeking over to see what you're doing, you're like, oh shit, all right, I gotta get, you I gotta get, yeah, yeah. And, and that, that's not a good feeling. And I mm -hmm. feel like it can't be conducive for the best work. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, that's a really good way of looking at it too. Cause then you give the people you're working with and the people that are working for you that reassurance. And mm -hmm. like, like I agree. Cause it's like, you don't want work that people feel rushed or criticized or under pressure. So I think that's a really good way of looking at it. Um, so obviously, like I mentioned, Patent Hex has a really good presence online. Your website, everything is very easy to understand. But say for a listener who's looking to become a client of Patent Hacks, what is the process for, you know, being able to get a patent reviewed? So the entire process is pretty lengthy, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but essentially what happens is, I, you know, it, again, this is all actually like subject to, you know, not legal advice coming from me, but it's like it's subject to like if you asked like a dozen different patent attorneys, you might get different answers. And I'll kind of give you a little yeah. story about that. But like for me coming from being a patent examiner, I feel like the research that you do beforehand is what sets everything else up. Because you think about right. it this way, if you don't know what you're up against, how can you strategize you know what I yeah. mean? Like, you're just going to be like, oh, okay, well, here's what my invention is. But if somebody did something similar and that could be rejected by a patent examiner in two seconds, that was a waste of time and money to put your patent application together. Yeah. So I'm a big believer in you start with the research, you see what's out there, you understand kind of what you're up against, and then you go into the process of prototyping and building your idea. Like, we're talking research comes before when you have an idea, you go start right. to research it before you actually spend time and effort into building it. Right. Like then me, you, myself and I like just your, yep. yeah. Okay. Yep. You start to research. So you legitimately understand like, here's what patents are out there. They're doing what I'm doing kind of similar, but mine things different. So now when you're going into that design phase of prototyping and of building out your thing, you're already doing it with the context of here's what's out there. I'm building this to be unique and different from what's out there. Right. Then when you go through that design and build phase you now completely understand your invention then you could shift over to the drafting phase which in a lot of cases in like the specification for example you're really just outlining the background of your invention what your invention is summarizing that and kind of putting down this the all the fine-tuned details of like here's all the part-to-part -part connections and what my invention does um and then the claims are kind of defining your invention so you could kind of write all of that 
with a better understanding now that you've already done the research and gone through that prototyping phase. And then you file. Uh, once you file, I think every application that came across my desk was at least a year old. So that's the part where everything slows down. Like you get all your yeah. work done, you hit the file, you, you hit the send to the USPTO button, you pay your fees, and then you just wait. And they'll send you an office action uh, that essentially breaks down if, if you're lucky enough that it's allowed, it's breaking down like what has been allowed. They couldn't reject. But if you're getting a rejection, then it'll break down and they'll give you the exact patent documents that were used to make the rejection and why essentially. Um, and then the cool thing for independent inventors is there's a provision in the MPEP. I think it's 707.07. .07. Essentially what it says is that if you're a pro se inventor, which just means you're filing on your own without the help of like a legal representative, mm -hmm. that... As the examiner's reviewing it, if they identify during their review that something in your application is worth a patent, which I could tell you as a patent examiner, you know what's harder to reject. If you're stringing together five or six different things to try to make a rejection, you understand. This is probably unique, but maybe I could piece things together. If they just worded it a little bit differently, they'd get a patent. When they acknowledge something like that, they're then supposed to help that independent inventor draft claims. So they help them write the claims and guarantee to them that if they include those into the application with an amendment, that it will be granted a patent. So that's a super powerful tool for the independent inventor that they could work with the examiner to help them put together claims that they are guaranteeing you will get a patent for this when we put it in. Um, and that's obviously a, a really cool thing that's specific to those independent inventors. Yeah, that's, see, that makes a lot of sense. I'm most curious though, again, coming from a place of like ignorance, I don't know a lot about this, obviously. When you're in that waiting phase though, does this mean you kind of, you can't really work on your prototype, your invention, expanding things at all because you're waiting for the feedback or for approval? No, you're good. Uh, so with patents, everything's about the date, right? Okay. Uh, it's, First, first things first, like as soon as you file any sort of patent application, you could start to say, hey, this is patent pending. When you have when you have that patent pending status like you're going, you're actually typically operating in the world as if you're going to get the patent in most cases, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, like if you're patent pending, you could in theory go send someone to cease and desist or say to somebody, hey, I'm in the process of, of patenting this idea. You're using my idea now. You can license this from me. We could start working on a licensing deal. Um, or if they, if they basically tell you like, go kick rocks, I don't, I'm, I'm not you're like, like, show me once you have a real patent, mm -hmm. then you retroactively can kind of go back to them and kind of, you know, deal, take them to core over the fact that they're using your idea. So that's something that, um, that's what the real power of a patent is. It doesn't mm -hmm. just prevent, it's not like a shield that just prevents people from taking your idea. It just gives you the power to take legal action mm -hmm. against them. So that's really what you're you're trying to figure out there. And, and like I said, with the dates, essentially, it's first to file, right? So it's not, there's, you there's, whenever there's a date associated with something, so actually it could be like a podcast episode, it could be a YouTube video, it could be a post on a forum, but if there's a hard date associated with showing an invention, that is the earliest file, earliest date of that invention. And that can be used against a patent application. There's people, there's times in my work that I've rejected people's patent applications with their own prior art because they just waited too long to file something. So yeah. um, so essentially, once you f do file, you're already locked into your date of your filing. Mm -hmm. So at that point, now you can go, you know, if you want to start producing your invention, if you want to start trying to sell it, whatever, you already have that earliest filing date associated with your patent application. 
Um, so a lot that's where people oftentimes feel comfortable. They want to file the patent and then they'll go forward and kind of start building out whatever it is that they're trying to do. That makes a lot more sense. Like, I'm glad I'm like asking these questions because I'm like, you probably deal with a lot of people who might not necessarily like know these things or actually maybe you deal with people who know more closer to your knowledge mm. than, no, than it's mo most. You'd be shocked. I would say it's rare if I find somebody that knows a lot about patents. Like if I talk to somebody and say, oh, I'm doing patents, most of the time they're like, oh, I, I don't know anything about patents. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, well, perfect. I built a patent education platform. That exactly. That. <laughs> and that's like what you're supposed to be doing through patent hacks. Well, I'm so I actually was curious. I wanted to ask you in terms of I thought of this like while we were talking, I was like, and I don't I'm hoping you can disclose this. Your demographics. Do mm -hmm. you find that you have a lot of people who are on the younger side, like us, like college students who are like coming up with these really great ideas and they just really don't have the means or like the like understand like the legal ramifications of everything or do you find that it, it is tends to be people who've been in their field a while so so there's kind of two answers i could give to that there's it depends for us our target audience on the b2b side is colleges and universities entrepreneurial organizations government and they tend to be passing that down to people below them. So obviously in the university space, if a university is paying to give access to our platform to, to their whole student base, that's going to infuse a lot of younger people that are working on their ideas into the platform. Uh, so because of that, we see a lot of younger people in the platform. But also, um, we've had people, like I said, government researchers, people signing up from that side of the world. Um, we also, like, uh, and then, so, so that's kind of, in our world, because of the people we target, we tend to get a good amount of younger people, but it's also blends in with like the everyday people from the street that sign up. We don't have right. their kind of metrics. I just know there's a lot of students coming in because you see the student email, you work with colleges and universities, you got a lot of those people coming in. So it's really kind of a blend of both, probably more so 50-50 on mm -hmm. who we bring in. But if you broaden that question out to like who in general is inventing, the statistics say that it's mostly people like like the majority, not obviously that everyone is this way, but the majority is people in their like 30s to 65 is most of the people who are creating inventions, which if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Because if I think back to when I was in college across the street, um, <laughs> I wasn't I was thinking of a lot of ideas but I had no idea how to bring them to life and if somebody didn't come to me from like an entrepreneurship center like the Kirby Center or something and say hey we'll help guide you along there's no way I would just magically figure out how to do all the things I did in this business and like build a whole business like mm -hmm. I at that point my mindset wasn't on hey here's all these let me put all these things together to build a business my mindset was on like innovating and here's what I do I'm the guy that has the idea that wants to bring this to life but if you're talking about patents you're talking about business like I'd rather bring someone else in to do it right. it was only when I got older and kind of more into that kind of stuff that that I was like, oh, okay, cool. I'd rather learn those skills and be able to do everything than have to depend on somebody else to be able to do something. So it's kind of something that maybe just comes with age. Everyone matures differently. Like some people might yeah. be, some people might be 15 and be like, I am ready to build a business right now. But for me, it came older and kind of based on the statistics, 30 to 65 being the big range mm -hmm. tends to kind of lean that way for most people. Well, it could also be opportunistic. Like, look at yeah. how you got into the patent industry. Like, it could be, sure. like, somebody, like, just thought of an idea. Or, like, it, it doesn't matter. That's why I was curious, too, because I knew it really didn't matter what age. But I find it fascinating. Like, I know you reached out and have sp spoken to, like, universities reach out to you and have you speak. Um, 
But is it like, I didn't realize that universities will pay for patent hacks for their students. Yeah, so there's a few different ways we do it. But uh, but yeah, we have, we have um, university clients, some, you know, major university clients um, that either pay for we have like a special program that's like uh, discounted for universities specifically to like help get access to our platform for students yeah so we have some universities that have come through that program we also have universities like actually technically the kirby center has two two licenses of our platform Mm -hmm. um so we have universities like that that'll that'll buy like a few here and there to just put in their entrepreneurship center or something so that like if needed the students could get access to it and then we have other people that have come in and just kind of outfitted their whole university with it and uh either way like whatever helps get a useful Mm -hmm. resource into students hands that's what we really care about i think that's so awesome and i mean i've i did a a podcast episode specifically with obviously i work for the allen p kirby center but Mm -hmm. i've always loved that about it because i think like like i'm someone like i don't know if you felt this way in engineering but I don't get a lot of opportunities in undergrad to work in my field. Mm-hmm. And I think what the Kirby Center has done, and I I got to see it. I helped with like the All Belgium pitch last year, like getting to watch students become entrepreneurs and be able to, because, you know, students are broke most of the right, time. Yeah. So I think that's the biggest thing is it's like when you're young, like I think for somebody who's like way into their field, like obviously like patent hacks is a really affordable way to achieve a patent. So I think, though, when you look at, like, the student side, those students are, you know, trying to afford meals every day. Yeah. So I think it's really awesome being able to do that because, you know, you might pass up on an opportunity that could have really afforded you some really incredible career options. A hundred percent. Yeah. And what I think one of the things a lot of students don't realize when they're in school is that being a part of a university is an asset in and of itself because you get access to so many resources. Like, thinking just from an engineering standpoint – when I was here, I had access to AutoCAD, I had access to SolidWorks, like all these CAD programs. Once you graduate, you just don't have access to mm-hmm. them anymore. That's how we are with Adobe. Yeah. yeah. And if you want to buy them, like the CAD programs will cost like hundreds or thousands of dollars. Yep. So it's like you're going to hopefully then move on to working with a company that has access to Peace that. But they're not going to want you working on your own in- projects on yeah, their Yeah, it has time. to be for the company. Yep. So it's like, so that's just one of those things where... Um, you want to take advantage while you're a student of the resources that are there. Uh, but obviously students, so most students aren't as motivated when they're students because they're enjoying that experience, which like we all do that. We all are like, oh yeah, I'm a student right now. I'll worry about like real world when I get there. Right. You're not as practical, obviously. Yeah. But it's like once you get there, you oftentimes turn back around and go like, ah, shit. <laughs> yep. Oh, ah, I wish I yep. still had access to those like you know, those platforms and things that the, that the university gave. So that's the other side of what we do with universities is I try my hardest to like get exposure for it and work with the universities to be like, Hey, let's actually let students know that this is here and let them know what it's all about so that it could actually help them. Um, but you know, it's, it's going to be, you know, pick or choose which students actually want to work on that and want to learn a whole new Mm -hmm. skill and actually apply it. So, uh, the ones that do though, my, you know, we get good feedback and, and they enjoy. Absolutely. And I think like there is very much a, like I get that just from working at the Kirby centers. I work, uh, I mean, I obviously am a student, so I don't mean like I work with, but like, like most of the students who are there, like, cause I, I'm coming from the similar experience is what I'm trying to say. I'm not like above it, but it's interesting cause you work with students who are obviously very passionate about their fields and want to get that experiential learning. So I feel like I'm lucky enough that I'm surrounded by students who 
I know were like go-getters and like I could see so many of the people I work with or like even myself being able to like pursue entrepreneurial careers Mm -hmm. but it's like sometimes you don't know where to start Mm -hmm. and I think that's why I'm really grateful that like I work for a center on campus that has given me like networking connections. Like now yeah. we know each other, like, right. you know, like I'll have that connection with you on LinkedIn like, yeah. Yeah. and I'll know you for like time to come. And like, that's, I think that's so important because not every student gets to do that. Like if you just go to class and you don't really do much else, sometimes right. it's hard. Like you have to talk to your professors, find the faculty and staff that will get you those connections. Cause mm-hmm. I think like otherwise, or, you know, you can listen to this podcast yeah. and that's how you'll find out about patent hacks. Exactly. So exactly. Like I think that's, you know, you just have to look for it. Yeah. But it's there. I think there's a huge wave. I, I've talked to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of universities over the past year. There's a huge wave towards entrepreneurship. I don't know if like the pandemic kicked that off or yeah. maybe it was already moving there before it. But every university in the country that I'm talking to, even ones that don't focus on entrepreneurship, are starting to build out entrepreneurship centers, entrepreneurship clubs. Like There's a, a big skew towards entrepreneurship. So whatever university you go to, obviously at Wilkes, you have the Kirby Center, um, go talk to people. If you're interested in entrepreneurship at all, there's somewhere on your campus in probably 90-something percent of the cases that had some of them have like multiple different programs. Like you don't have to go major in it. You don't have to go take classes in it. Like there's resources there for you to just get involved with the, the aspects of entrepreneurship that you're interested in. So I would definitely encourage, that's one thing I wish I did. I don't know if they had it. I'm ancient now. We'd spend like <laughs> whatever, seven years. So I don't know um, how established it was back when I was uh, in school here, but like, oh, actually, yeah, I think it was. But you got to go, like, that's one thing I wish I would have done is go get involved with the people that like, as I had these ideas and I was talking to people about them, they could have been like, hey, we could help you actually execute on that. Because yeah. that's the scariest thing. Anybody that has an idea the scariest part of having an idea is, okay, well, now I have to execute on that idea. (laughs) And how the heck heck do I do half this stuff, right? Like a lot of times people, to be able to take an idea start to finish and build a successful business by yourself would take like superhuman abilities. You're going to have to work with other people that help contribute along the way. And that entrepreneurship center at your university is usually where you're going to find those resources. So I definitely encourage people to go check that out. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. I think it's it's an experience like I haven't had anything similar to it in terms of other things I've been a part of on campus. And that's not to, to discount anything else, but like it's definitely more of a, a real world experience. Right. Yeah. Yep. So I completely agree with you. Well, all of this has been so incredibly um amazing getting to talk to you. So I'm sad we're at our final question, but I'm super excited because I know we've covered a lot of really great stuff. So um, as most people know, if you've listened to the show before, one of my favorite questions to end on is getting advice because I get to talk to a lot of really cool people with a lot of really cool experiences. So Trevor, what advice would you give to students who maybe have entrepreneurial ideas or wish to pursue a career maybe similar to yours? Um, What is your advice in terms of the experiences that you've had? Oof, that's tough because I feel like we've given a bunch of like, there's a advice lot. throughout. Yeah, the... there's already a lot included in this, but yeah. maybe like something that you wish you would have known going into it or maybe something you think you can offer. Yeah, I'm trying to not retread. I'm trying to like think of something new because a lot of the things that we've already said are the things yeah. I would normally... Like importance of failure. Like, right, yeah. like that, like going to your set, like go mm-hmm. find the resources that are there for you, things like that. Right. Uh, the mental health side of things of like... You know, that I guess that like that would be the biggest thing I would say is 
two things around kind of like the mental health side or like the planning head, like build a good support system and team around you. It doesn't always have to be people that are involved in the project with you, but like you're going to get a lot of anytime you want to try something new. And I am not unique to this. Like I got investor, I got my partners to commit to this idea and be willing to invest a lot of money into building this business. And I still had people close to me being like, I don't know if that's the path you should take. Like you're always going to have people that are kind of the doubters. And a lot of times when you're in an ecosystem of like university, high school, you know, even your friend group, you'll have people that kind of bust on you or like, or like joke around and kind of make fun of it or, or like maybe don't have the most confidence that you could succeed in that. But I would say the, the ability to just block all that out and be like, if this is something I care about, then nobody else's opinion matters. The only opinions that matter are the people that want to be involved in this project with me. And those are the people where if they're like, eh, I don't know about that idea, let's go with this one. You like if it's not a constructive criticism, you gotta be you gotta be open to constructive criticism and you gotta know where that line is. You can't like get offended if somebody's criticism is just not what you wanna hear. If yeah. it's still constructive, then you gotta listen to it. But like you listen to the constructive criticism of people that are saying, like, I don't know about this, what about this? Don't listen to people that are saying like that won't work. If they're not providing some sort of context as to like why or how can you actually help me get to the next step, then it's not useful. So that level of like negativity and stuff is what I would say, like block all that out. Mm -hmm. You can't let people, you can't let like somebody making you feel embarrassed or something like that be what stops you. Because the context I always give to that is like, imagine you're 50 years down the road or 30 years down the road and you're sitting on your couch, not happy with your life, thinking back about like in that case, like let's say you got to that point and you're looking, thinking back and you're like, I wish I didn't let people like bully me or like, you know make fun of me and, and even if they're just joking around like make me feel bad about what I was trying to do yeah. that that concept is I think what scares a lot of people off too right like if it's not the business that scares them off it's the uh, people are making fun of me saying I'm going to fail whatever I don't I won't even try it that's where I would say you block all that out and if you believe in something if you're passionate about something you go forward and like we said earlier even if you fail you'll learn from it and it'll make you better for the next thing you do anyway so I think that's that's what I would say. That was phenomenal advice. Everything this episode has been so great. It was so great getting to have this podcast with you, Trevor. Thank you so much for coming on with me. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to put Trevor's info as well as Pat and Hack's info in the description of this podcast. So please check it out if you're interested. I'll put Trevor's LinkedIn um, yep. if anybody wants to reach out, um, get more information. And I know there was plenty of information in this podcast. But if you're interested, please, please, please. Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, don't forget to keep it locked here on 90.7 WCLH Radio.